Today we're going to do something a, a, a little different, and that's why I had you a sit, because we are not going to have an uh, expositional sermon uh, today, I am not, meaning I am not going to come from one particular text, and we're not going to look verse by verse and exposit or expose what is in the text, but rather today we are going to start a series uh, about singleness. And the title of the mini-series is Living Single. Amen. Living Single. And this first sermon that we are going to explore today is a topical sermon, meaning that we're going to be coming from multiple verses throughout the Bible. Amen. From multiple verses throughout the Bible. And the verses that we come from and the verses that I quote, uh, feel free to go home and look at those verses and to look at them in its context, amen, to make sure that pastor was using them the right way, amen. So we are going to start a series, a mini-series called Living Single. As of this moment, it's probably going to be a three-part series, amen, uh, a three-part series series. So let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we thank you for your word. For it's truly your word that gives life, and it is truly your word that is life. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would breathe upon us, Lord, and give us, Lord, what we need to honor you. I pray, Father God, that you would give me the grace to preach in such a way that would help to present your children, your prized possession, your priesthood as mature before you. Speak, Lord. I pray for those who are single today. I pray, Father God, that you would do something in their heart that only you can do. I pray that you would give them a deep, deep sense of contentment and satisfaction in you. And I pray for those who are married, God. I pray, Father God, that you would help them to see singleness from a biblical perspective in order that they may serve singles, in order that they would know how to encourage singles, in order that they will raise up children who, who will be single in a way that reflects your glory. Speak, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we are going to be starting this series on singleness. I pray that it will be a, a deep blessing to you. We will resume the subject uh, in two weeks. Next week we have our college day. Uh, we'll have a guest preacher, a man, who's going to come and he's going to do a phenomenal job. Uh, uh, preaching and presenting uh, God's word. So as Minister Nate said, we want to invite you all out next week, but we also want you to bring some other young folks, some young adults, and uh, we're just going to party, amen? And we're going to have a good time. Well, LeBron James has finally won an NBA championship after nine long seasons. He finally won it. And it was exciting to see him finally win it because even during the celebration, you can sense that a, a monkey was kind of off his back. 
everyone, before he won a championship, all they could talk about is how he wasn't really a, a great player yet until he won a title. In fact, some people started changing his name from King James to Queen James. And no matter what type of numbers he would put up in a regular season, everyone would always say, yeah, but it's not the postseason yet. And you know he's going to flop in the postseason. So to see LeBron James win the title, uh, even for people who are not particularly fans of his, like me, it, it was a sense of relief. It was a sense of relief. But you know, right after he won his NBA title, and, and as he was celebrating on the court, uh, the sportscasters came and, and talked to him, and he talked about how excited he was about it. And then they went to commercial break. And as soon as they came back from the commercial break, they began to talk again about the Miami Heat and how they just won the title and how great LeBron James was and how he was finally a great player. But within moments, the, 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 the conversation changed. And it changed to, yeah, LeBron has won one, so he's a great player. But, you know, if he wants to be a great, great player, he has to win more than one title. Nine years, he finally gets this monkey off the back. The moment he wins a title and he feels a sense of relief, the conversation changes from one title isn't enough. You need more if you're really going to be a great player. Next day on ESPN, everyone was congratulating him for a title, but the conversation shifts. To can he win multiple titles? Jordan won multiple titles. Magic has won multiple titles. Larry Bird has won multiple titles. But can LeBron James win multiple titles? So here it is. He gets what he's been striving for. Gets this monkey off his back. And then right away, another monkey is put on his back. But that shows us how human nature works. Human nature is never satisfied with earthly things. Never. It's, it's, it's never satisfied. We accomplish one goal, and all of a sudden, people are putting pressure on us and saying that that's not enough. And truth be told, we put pressure on ourselves, and we say that's not enough. We say, if I only had, or if I could only get, and then we get that, and then it's like the wind. It, it escapes our hands, and we begin to chase the next thing. We have hearts that are set on being discontent. Some of you are married, and when you were single, all you wanted to do is get that title. All you wanted to do was get that marriage license. You said, if only I can get him or her to marry me, everything would be all right. Fast forward 10 to 20 years, and you want to lose the title. Those who are married, sometimes, in many cases, half of those who are married, Sometimes wish that they were single. And those who are single wish that they 
were married. But we have to see and we will learn throughout this series that marriage is not what's ultimately going to satisfy you. And not being married is not what is going to ultimately satisfy you. We as Christians must learn that whatever state we are in, whether we are married or whether we are single, that God has called us to that state and that state is a gift from him. If you're married, you have a gift that God has given you. It is the gift of marriage. And if you're single, you have a gift that God has given you. And it is a gift of marriage, a gift of singleness. Now, I'll be honest. For most of my time as a single man, I did not see my singleness as a gift. I felt like LeBron did. I felt like a monkey was on my back. And as a result, I tried to make things happen that God did not want to make happen. I tried to force a few relationships, even when I knew that this relationship didn't mean me no good. And I ended up with a broken heart. I ended up having a messed up psyche. I ended up not trusting people. Not only that, I ended up breaking people's hearts. And I ended up deeply wounding people because I went about dating and I went about my singleness not on God's terms, but on my terms. But by God's grace, a a short time before I got married, about a year and a half before I got married, the Lord began to reveal to me what it means to be a Christian single. And he began to show me through his word that I and and Christians in general, that we must pursue singleness not on our own terms, but on his terms. And I began to learn and I began to study and I began to see that God has given me a precious gift that I ought to take care of. So today... Part one, we want to discuss in this series, Living Single, we want to talk about this gift of singleness and how we unwrap the gift of singleness. You say, what do you mean this gift of singleness? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says these words, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has its own gift from God One of one kind and one of another kind. Again, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another kind. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to really dive into this text in a couple weeks. He is writing to church at Corinth. And he is writing a specific church that has specific needs. And in chapter 7, he addresses those who are single as well as those who are married. And the Apostle Paul was single himself. And in light of his understanding of the gospel, and in light of his understanding of the Basileia Tau Theos, the kingdom of God, he is about to 
confront those who are in his church and encourage those who are in his church with a biblical perspective of marriage and singleness. And he starts off by saying that he wished that everyone was single like he is. And we'll dive into that later. But he goes on and he says, but each has his own gift from God. Now, traditionally, people talk about the gift of singleness. And when they talk about the gift of singleness, traditionally, we talk about it, many people talk about it in a way that says that there are particular people who have been given a spiritual gift of singleness, meaning that God has wired them a specific way, a certain way, that they are not meant to marry and they will not marry. And granted, one could read this, and I think that definitely there is a a sense in which God has given someone a a spiritual gift of singleness. I don't think that someone knows that right away. I think they discover it as they live and are single. But I think that Paul means this in another way. What Paul is saying here, I believe, is that each has been given a a special gift. That is, the state that you are in, every single has been given a gift of being single. He's saying that singles ought not to look at their singleness as a gruesome curse, but as a gift. And that's what we want to unpack today, this thought that singleness is a gift from God, not a gruesome curse. So if you are single here today, it is a gift that God has given you. You are not cursed because you are not married or you are not engaged. God has handed over to you a incredible, incredible gift. And we are going to unwrap this gift. We are going to look at this gift from multiple ways as the weeks go on. Now, before we talk about the gift that God has given you, which is singleness, I first want to start by focusing your eyes on the giver. Because if we look at the gift without truly standing in awe of the giver, We won't appreciate the gift. Sometimes people try to give you gifts, and before you accept the gift, you you, kind of say, wait a minute, I know who this is from. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I want to. I'm fine. I'm fine. We got plenty of that at home. Because the giver is not impressive, right? Well, if you're going to admire the season and and take care of the season of singleness, this this state of singleness, because for some it may not be a season. For some, it may be a calling. If you're going to take care of it, you must focus first on the giver. The giver. And who is the giver? The giver is God. And let's talk about God. Who is God? The Bible teaches us that God is the creator of the universe. He's the creator of the universe. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he founded upon the waters and he established it upon the seas. God is the creator. But what's so bad about God, what's so awesome about God is how he created. He created ex nihilo, which means he created out of nothing. It means that he did not have building blocks that he needed to create. And nor did he have to have materials to create. But God, in his godness, and because he is God, he created out of nothing. He just spoke and things came into existence. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. He says, by faith we understand that the worlds were formed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen 
were not made of things which were visible, meaning that God just created and he and it just was. Every single thing that is created by man had to be created with some building blocks. Man could not make anything from anything. You can't make Kool-Aid from anything. And look how simple Kool-Aid is. Water and sugar and some sprinkly color, colorful stuff, right? But God created this massive universe without any building blocks. In fact, God contradicts the law of physics, the first law, which says that this is impossible and which says that, that material things will not be destroyed and cannot be destroyed. Well, God contradicts it because God is supernatural and God, who is the law himself, can impede on the law at any given time. God is the creator. He is so awesome. Job said that he stretches out the north over the void and he hangs the earth on nothing. Job didn't have a telescope. Job didn't have any technology. Job didn't know if the world was round or flat, but he just knew what God revealed to him. And he knew that God just flung the earth in the middle of space and is hanging on nothing. Have you ever stopped to think about how great of a creator he is? He's so great that this earth, which is estimated to, to weigh about six sextillion tons, that is two sixes with 20 zeros behind it. This earth that weighs six sextillion tons is spinning in the air. But it's not just spinning in the air like a globe try to spins a ball in the air or on a finger on something. It is spinning on an invisible axis. And it is going round and round and round. Let me ask you a question. Are you dizzy yet? He, he, he allows it to spin in midair without any visible axis. And it's created so, so intricately, so, so masterfully, so, so, so wonderfully when you stop and think about it. It's created with such precision and such exactness that if the sun was to, to, to decide to rebel against the boundaries that God had given it, no life would be able to exist. It is created so fashionably. And, and what's so beautiful about this creation that this great God has created is, is he didn't leave any fingerprints behind when he created it. Uh, uh, he didn't leave any fingerprints behind. Have you ever stopped to think about that? The writer of the song says that we ought to praise him who rides on the clouds and who makes the clouds his chariots, who walks on the wings of the wind. Have you tuned in to CNN lately? And have you tuned in and listened to some people who say that they're scientists and how they're still trying to figure out how this all began? God didn't even leave fingerprints. He's a bad guy. <laughs> Creates out of nothing. We ought to marvel at that God. Not only is he creator, but he is smart. When we think about his creation and when we look at the mountains and the, when we look at the oceans and the deep seas, when we look at the birds and all the, the reptiles, when we think about the fact that there are animals that are not yet discovered in the ocean. When, when we think about how, how wonderful he is and how he's keeping everything together, Colossians says, just with his word. Not only did he create, but he is keeping it together with his word. When we stop and think about that, we have to think about his brilliance and how smart he is. He is perfectly smart. Paul, when writing the book of Romans, got real deep on us for about 11 chapters, and he dropped some, some real good doctrine on us. 
Real good doctrine. The first 11 chapters is just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful doctrine. And then in chapter 12, he says, let me break down this doctrine and let me show you how this affects your life. But before he went from doctrine to practicality, he had to stop for a moment of doxology or a moment of praise. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33, after writing all this doctrine, after writing all this teaching, he said, let me pause for a second. And he started with a very theological word, a word that, that I, I, I'm going to need uh, uh, to break down for you, a, a word that's kind of heavy, a, a word that could, could really catch us up. And you know what he started with in chapter 11, verse 33? The word, oh. <laughs> We're reflecting on God and, and all this great teaching. He couldn't stop, but, but to stop and praise God in the midst of his writing. And he said, oh. <laughs> Does God ever make you say, Oh, and, and what does he go and talk about after the oh? He says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable and unfathomable are his ways. Paul said God is deep, deep. He said he's, he's deep. He said his, his wisdom is deep. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to make the right decisions at the right time for the right reason. He said God's wisdom is deep. He's always making the right decision at the right time for the right reason. Not only is his wisdom deep, but he said his knowledge is deep. He said, oh, who, who can search the riches of God? He goes on and says, who can, who can give counsel to God? Didn't did Job find out that he could not give counsel to God? Job, who suffered more than any other human being except for Jesus, who had everything stripped away from him, who had some friends who came and tried to convince him that the reason he was suffering was because he was doing something wrong, when in fact the reason he was suffering is because he was doing something right. Job began to investigate and began to question God, and then God said, let me pay Job a visit. And the Bible says that he showed up in a whirlwind. We show up in cars. God showed up in a whirlwind. And he began to ask Job, he says, who, who are you to question me? Uh, stand up and, and, and take this questioning like a man. <laughs> he said, where were you? God has so much knowledge. His knowledge has knowledge. In fact, we say that he's omniscient, which means that he knows everything. And one of the reasons he knows everywhere is because he's got the 411 on everything. How does he have the 411 on everything? Because he's omnipresent. <laughs> he's everywhere at the same time. So he's not getting breaking news because he is always there when the news breaks. In fact, he knows that the news is going to break before the news breaks. He is everywhere. And not only is he everywhere as far as the earth and the heavens and, and, and as far as even the depths of the earth and hell, but he is everywhere, meaning that he is in the past right now, he is in the present right now, and he is in the future right now. He is standing outside of time, and yet somehow he is in time being very active with his creation. We serve a bad God. You don't have to praise him, but I'm just going to stop right now and just say, oh, Not only is he smart, but he's sovereign, which means that God is in complete control at every circumstance. He is in complete control of every event. He is in complete control of every creature. He has been in complete control of every movement in history. He is subject to none, influenced by none, and he cannot be bribed by any. Nothing is outside of God's control. 
When we look at the Bible, we see how sovereign he is. When we look at the Exodus, we see how sovereign he is. When we look at the life of Joseph, we see how sovereign he is. But if you stop and you think for a minute, all you have to do is think about your life to say, man, he is sovereign. Sometimes man thinks that they're smarter than God. And sometimes man thinks that they're more sovereign than God. I'm reminded by Napoleon Barnabite, who was a very wee little man who had a big, the big man syndrome. And God allowed Napoleon to conquer a lot of places for France. And he allowed Napoleon to, con- to have some great victories. But Napoleon was getting ready to go to war against Russia and some other surrounding countries. And he was sitting in his, his game room, so to speak, and he was making plans and saying, this is what we're going to do. We're going to come in this way, we're going to leave this way, we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And the story is told that his general stood up and said, yeah, but N- Napoleon, we, we have to remember something. Man proposes, but God disposes. And Napoleon stood up in pride, the story goes, and says, no, Napoleon proposes, and Napoleon disposes. I don't think I have to tell you how it ended up, do I? Napoleon thought he was smart. Napoleon thought that he was the sovereign of the universe at the time. And history teaches that he then went and went to war against Russia. This mighty man who had a powerful army ended up losing in war. Now, there's a number of reasons why we can say that he lost, but the ultimate reason that he lost was because of something very small. Something small and something that just comes from the air. Something that God allows to come down, and that's snow. The reason why his army was defeated was because it was so cold that he lost more than half of his army to the cold. And many of them died in their sleep because of hyperthermia. (laughs) Napoleon said that he is the one who proposes and he is the one who disposes. And God says, look, I'm not going to send an atomic bomb. I'm not going to send more armies. All I'm going to do is send some snow and drop the temperature. And I'm going to show you how I dispose. God is sovereign. We're in Haiti. Showed up at a church. I had a sermon that I thought that the Lord had given me sitting in a pulpit and I just felt deep in my heart that God was saying, no, that's not what you're going to preach. And I knew that the Lord was telling me not to preach it. So all of a sudden I'm in the middle of this service and I pick up my Bible. I say, Lord, well, where do you want me to go? And I take out a notepad and I'm on, I'm on a pulpit working on a sermon. I said, Lord, this looks so bad. And I begin to say, okay, Lord, you've given me two things. I, I just need to know, I just need to know what you want me to preach. And I begin to work profusely on these two. And I looked at them both. I said, oh, both of these are good. I would love to talk to your people about either of these subjects. I looked at my translator. I said, I got two subjects that I'm working in between right now. Can you help me to decide which one I, I need to preach? You know these people better than I do. What do you want me to preach? And he said, brother, out of what you just told me, they need both. Why don't you spend these next few minutes in prayer and trust that the Lord will give it to you? One of our sisters who were on a mission trip was scheduled to give her testimony, Joy. And she came up to give a a testimony to share a short word with the audience. And she turned her Bible and taught from one of the places that I was getting ready to preach from. So God said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not where you to go. God is so sovereign, he's so providential, he works all things together for his good. He is in control at all times. He was so in in control that he had my heart in his hand. But he also had her heart 
in his hand. And he was speaking to her and me at the same time. He was saying, Joy, I know you came prepared to teach something, but Pastor Jamar is a little off alignment right now, and he's really struggling. And he just took a break to pray to me. So now I'm going to answer his prayer, but you're going to be the answer to his prayer. Because what you're going to turn to and, and exalt on for a moment is what I don't want him to preach on for a moment. God is so smart. God is so sovereign. But, you know, we can have a God who's a great creator, a God who is so smart, and a God who is so sovereign. But if he's not sweet, I don't want to deal with him. If, if God has all control, and if God is the smartest of all beings, perfectly smart, but he was not a sweet God, meaning that he was not a good God and a loving God, I couldn't trust him. But the Bible says that God is smart. The Bible says that God is sovereign, and the Bible says that God is sweet. He is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, verse 8. Psalm 100, verse 5. For God is good. His mercy endures forever, and his truth endures for all generations. Psalm 105, verse 9. The Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. God does not just do good. We sometimes do good. The Bible teaches that God is good, which means that goodness is his very nature. And everything he does is good. Oh, is it good? But he's love. He doesn't just love. First John chapter four, verse one says that God is love. And I don't have to sit here and tell you about how we know he's love. We can, I, you, you know that he's love just by what he's done for you and sending his son to die on the cross for you. Paul, in the midst of Romans chapter 8, had to bust out and after meditating on God's love. And he said, who can separate us from the love of God? And he began to try to just think of things that could separate us from God's love if we're thinking about it on our terms. He said, nope, that can't separate us from God's love. Not death, nor angels, nor things past, nor things present. God is love. That is his nature. But what does all this have to do with singleness? This has everything to do with singleness. God has everything to do with the state you are in. God has everything to do with you being either single or married right now. It's not Nuke Nuke's fault. And it's not ultimately Bebe's fault. Yes, they have some human responsibility, but you are right where God wants you. This God that is powerful and who is a creative creator, this God who is perfectly smart, this God who is precisely sovereign, this God who is selfishly sweet, has created you, and he has sovereignly placed you right where you are. It is by no mistake that you are single. And the only way you're going to see singleness as a gift and not as a gruesome curse is if you trust this God who has revealed himself in the Bible. And he has revealed himself. Exodus chapter 34, God shows up to Moses. He says, Moses, people are misrepresenting my identity. I need you to hear from me who I am. And he says, Yahweh, Yahweh. 
The Lord, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He was giving Moses a glimpse of who he was so that Moses, whenever he was in a situation that made him feel discontent, that Moses can go back to his resume and to his identity and say, I am in this situation, but this situation is not the Lord. The Lord is the Lord and he is good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is sovereign over all things? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. If you are a believer of God, this applies to you. He says, for we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. Some translations say that we are his handiwork. The Greek word for that is Poema, we are his poema, where we get the word poem from. We are his artistic work that he has decided to create. And he has created us in Jesus Christ for good works. If you are single, he has created you. He has formed you. You are his poem, his masterpiece. And he is putting you together for good works. Acts of virtue. Empowered by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, for good works. And these good works, Paul said, was prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. Everything in your life was prepared beforehand by a good and gracious God. And if you're a believer, we believe that even the bad things, even the heartbreaks, even the wounds of the past, that God knew about them. And he allowed them to happen because he was going to work it and turn it for the good of those who trust him and who are called according to his purpose. So not only are our good works prepared beforehand. But the very state that you are in right now was prepared beforehand. You have to trust that God has you in this state for a reason. Everything that God allows for a Christian, every way that God allows a Christian to turn, is a gift from him. If he allowed it, even though it itself may not be good, he is going to use it for his good, to make you look more like him. And that's the perspective that the biblical authors have. That's why Paul can say, in all things give thanks. In all things. That's why James can say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials, when you meet trials of various kinds. For the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness. It produces staying power. It produces endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to say that all gifts that God gives are perfect and from above. 
So I want you to see this season in your life as not a, a gruesome, gruesome curse, but as a gift from God. I want you to see that God has a purpose for your singleness. I want you to see that God has a perspective of singleness that is radically different from the world. And I want you to understand that if you do not see it like this, you are going to wind up hurting yourself. You are going to wind up driving yourself crazy. You are going to wind up carrying more baggage than you have to. Like I did. So let's look at singleness really quickly from God's perspective. The world says if you're single, something's wrong with you. Especially if you're past a certain age. I'm not going to say that age. That age doesn't exist. But if you're single and you're not married yet, something has to be wrong with you. The world wants you to believe that if you're single, then you're lonely. If you're single, then you're barren. In the Old Testament, we see that the Jews had a similar philosophy for singles. The Bible says that marriage was a good thing. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God instituted it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. And it also says that having children is a blessing from God. It is a a gift from God, and God commands us to be fruitful and to multiply. So for most Jews, to be married was a good thing. And those who were single were normally ostracized, and they normally felt, because they were under the, 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 the Mosaic Covenant, they normally felt like they were cursed. And this was their thinking. This was how they felt, this is what they taught, this is how they lived until a certain point in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 53, God begins to change the way we think about singleness. And he begins to change the way that Israel was to think about barrenness. He says these words. Now this is a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. You can turn there real quick. And we're right where we need to be. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Truth be told, some of us who are married in here, we we impose these things on singles now, don't we? Got some single nephews and and nieces who are single. Always putting pressure on them. Baby, if you're just... Pull your dress up a little more. Man, you got to do something about that car. Ain't no woman going to want to drive around you in that clunker. God says, those who are minds and those who are single are right where I want them to be. I've given them a gift. A gift. They're not cursed. Isaiah 53 verse 10. This is about the suffering servant Jesus in incredible chapters. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Speaking of Jesus. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So for those of you who think 
that someone is deficient or that you are lacking something because you do not have offspring, because you are not married. Look at this from God's perspective. Number one, Jesus was not married. And Jesus was perfect, lacking in nothing. Jesus was the perfect example of humanity. And he was not married. But it says something very peculiar here. It says he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Wait a minute. Jesus wasn't married. And Jesus didn't have children. How shall he see? Who was his offspring? Under the old covenant, the way that the kingdom of God was spread was through births physical births of kids. Israel grew as Israel was multiplying and as they were having children. Under the new covenant, under Jesus, the way that the kingdom of God grows is not through physical procreation, but the kingdom of God grows through spiritual regeneration. Jesus' offspring are those who are given a new heart by him through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' offspring are those who come to faith and, 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 and who comes to be able to trust in him. So God says that Jesus has offsprings. Now check this out. Isaiah chapter 56. The Lord flips the script on Israel. And he's trying to change the way Israel thinks about singles and thinks about eunuchs. Those who have dedicated themselves not to be married by force or by choice. And look what the word says. This specifically applies to Israel as a whole, but it also applies to individuals. It says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, verse 3, say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, that is the single, the person who is not married, behold, I am a dry tree. So he flips it. He says, from, from the times in past, those who were blessed were seen as those who, had, who were married and those who had kids. But he stops and he says, no, let not the eunuch say, I am a dry tree. Let not the eunuch say, I am barren. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me. And who hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall be cut off. God says that you are not a dry tree. In fact, he says that those who are single and those who have been called to be single as eunuchs, that you are not barren. And if you live according in obedience to me, keeping my Sabbath, New Testament twist on it, those who are resting in Jesus, those who are finding their identity in Christ, and we're going to talk a lot about that next sermon, those who are using their singleness as a picture of the gospel, get to that the next sermon, those who are committed to living for Jesus, who have surrendered to Jesus, he says, I will give a monument to them in heaven. Those who have sacrificed the temptation to marry just to marry. 
To marry Nuke Nuke just because you want somebody and somebody's better than nobody and God can use you to change them. Those who come to God and say, I want to be single on your terms and not on my terms are those who are blessed. Turn back a chapter. Isaiah chapter 54. Verse 1. Sing. Who, who should sing? Who should sing? Sing David? No. Sing. Who should sing? Sing the one who is married? No. Sing. Who should sing? Sing the one who is having a good day? No. Sing, oh barren one. What? Sing, oh barren one. Who did not bear? Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been a labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. This is a tough truth. Not everyone who is Christian will get married. Marriage is a good thing. And marriage is an honorable thing. But God has called some to be single in order that they will be a picture of God's grace and the gospel. And in order that they would produce more children than those who are married with children. God calls some people to singleness. Because he wants to use them to make a huge, huge impact in the kingdom of God and on this earth. He says the one who is barren can rejoice. Paul picks this up in Corinthians chapter 7. They can rejoice because they have now been devoted to the Lord and his ministry and God is going to bless their ministry with children. What type of children? Physical children? No. With spiritual children. That they will have a sense of fulfillment because they are in God doing his will and they are seeing. And even if they're not seeing, they are going to one day see the fruit that it has bared. That there will be people who are added to the kingdom of God because of them. We have to see singleness from God's perspective. God is sovereign. If you're single, it is because he has given you a gift, a gift that is to be enjoyed. He says, you're not a dry tree. This is not wasted time. You are blessed and you shall bear. You may not bear physical children, but you will bear spiritual children. But I feel so unfulfilled. Not having that husband, not having that wife, I feel so unfulfilled. And we know that there. Are, are, are two extremes. There's the extreme where we, we, look, we can look to marriage as an idol and worship it and think that we need to be married in order to be complete. As a Christian, you, we don't need to be married in order to be complete. But then there's another extreme that we see this happening throughout secular America, and that is, is that we absolutely abhor marriage. And we say we should live our lives as singles. But God says, no, the, the view I want you to have of singleness, young person, it's, yes, it's okay to desire to be married. It's a good thing to desire to be married. But in desiring to be married, do not worship marriage. 
Not only should you not worship marriage, but your, your focus while you're single should be on the Lord. God has given you this gift, and he's given you this gift in order that you would know him more, in order that you would become intimate with him more, in order that you would produce spiritual fruit and spiritual children. Trust his sovereignty. Don't try to make a relationship that you know is not working, a relationship that has been going up and down for the last 10 years, a relationship that has promised marriage for the last 15 years, a relationship that is causing you to stumble, a relationship that is causing you to sin, a relationship that is sucking the life out of you. Do not go and say that I'm going to make this work. Trust the sovereign God and say, God, I am going to find my identity and I am going to find my security in you. You trust this creator? Do you, can you trust this one? Who is perfectly smart? Can you trust this one who is sweet? And say, God, I know that if you allow me to be married, it is going to be a gift and it's going to be a blessing to your kingdom. But God, I believe, even though I may not feel like it right now, I believe that if you don't allow me to be married, that you, that you can give me a deep sense of satisfaction and that you can use me for your glory. God is not looking at you saying, get, this girl needs to get it together. Her biological clock is tick, tick, ticking. God is not looking at you and saying, oh, I'm not going to allow her to get married for some frivolous reason. If you are not married, young man, if you are not married yet, young woman, it is because God wants to do something for you and through you and to you. And it's God who flung the earth into nothingness and who is allowing this six sextillion tons of weight to spin on an invisible axis. I think he is able to make sense of your life. I think he is able to send you, young woman, the man that he has for you when it is time, if it is time. Stop trying to do it yourself. Please. I tried to do it myself. And did stupid things. And argued for stupid reasons. I was thinking the other day about an argument that I got into before I met my wife. Amen. By God's grace, he has really allowed us to have a low-maintenance marriage. Amen? But I remember I was trying to date this girl. Sister Debbie, I know. I know. I, I know. I was trying to fit a square into a circle. And I remember one day we was walking on campus. And she was walking slow, and I was walking faster. And I remember us arguing, Minister Nate, for 20 minutes about who was walking at the right pace. <laughs> and that lasted for about two to three days. Some of you argue and fight over silly and stupid things back and forth with someone that's never peace. Because you are looking for in that person what only God can give you. You have exalted that person to an idol. You know that God does not want you with that person because that person is not driving you to him. 
You're hoping, but you don't know it. And if you don't know, then you should slow your roll. Jared, I hope you got that. That's in the song. If you don't know, slow your roll. Slow your roll. Leroy. Slow your roll. Back up. Look at this gift that God has given you. Unwrap it. Explore it. See what God wants to do in your life. Trust this sovereign God. Let me close with a couple of thoughts really quickly. Let's go down. Isaiah chapter 54. Really quickly. Look at verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. (laughs) Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. Those of you who are single, do you see this? It says that your maker is your bridegroom. He is your husband. In the gospel, Jesus came and he stepped on scene and he revealed to the disciples that he was the bridegroom. He was the bridegroom. He was the true husband of Israel. He claimed deity. What is God saying to you today? He's saying that in a way, in a way, we all are married if you're a believer. We are married to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. He is our redeemer and he is also our creator. Now, don't just run past this word. Your maker is your husband. And don't just think that this is just philosophical or this is some mystical saying. No, this is a spiritual reality and it is a fact. If you belong to God, you are wedded to God because you are a part of his church, his bride. You are married. You are in a relationship. And let me tell you something. If you are married to God, if you are married to Jesus, being married to him will outlast, outfulfill feel and should out satisfy being married to any knuckleheaded man I don't care how cute he is and what type of cologne he wears because God the one who you is married to is also the God who created you he's also the God who purposed your steps he's also the God who has given you life he knows you better than you know yourself he is your author he knows the intricate parts of your heart and oh yeah this God who knows you is also the God who loved you enough to sacrifice That which was most important for you. This is an intimate saying. The Lord your God, he is your husband. Jesus is your husband. Wait, wait, wait. He could have said the Lord your God, he is your father. Father, that's a great picture of a protector and a provider. But he did not say that. He could have said the Lord your God, he is your shepherd. Shepherd, one who cares for a sheep and who tends to a sheep. But he did not say that. He he could have said a, a lot of other things. But he said, no, I'm your husband. Why? Because a husband, this picture of matrimony, this picture of marriage is the most intimate picture and analogy that can be used. Not, not many people kiss their father on the lips. After the age two or three, that's just maybe four or five. All right, ladies, maybe seven. A husband knows everything about his wife. A wife can share everything about their husband to their, with their husband. If all the world around me is going array and my wife is still affirming me and loving me, I can still have peace while the world is crumbling. But if everything is going great in the world and my wife has no peace and there's no peace between us, I have no peace. God says, I'm your husband. If you would focus in on me 
even in the midst of your discontentment, in times of discontentment, I can satisfy you. Everything can be right. And when cynics and skeptics say, oh, child, you still ain't married, you can say, oh, baby, I'm married. (laughs) I'm spoken for. I may not have a physical ring, but I'm spoken for. Let me tell you what my husband did for me last night. Last night I was a little down and I I picked up his love letter and I I read in his love letter how he sings over me. (laughs) Oh, I'm I'm spoken for. Does, Does your husband sing over for you? I'm spoken for. I understand what you're saying, but don't look at me like I've got a problem. Don't look at me as if there's a a gruesome curse upon me. I'm blessed. Those of you who are single, do three things with this message. Eat, pray, and learn. Eat. Jeremiah 15 and 16, your words were found. And I ate them. Your words became like honey to me. In times of discontentment, when you feel less than, run to God's word. Eat. Pray. You're going to feel discontentment. And you're going to have a time of discouragement. And during that time of discouragement, pray. Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 say, do not be anxious about your singleness. I mean, do not be anxious for anything. But in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard. What does you need to be guarded during your times of singleness? It shall guard your heart and your mind. Learn. There are many, many battles that a single person has. Many, many things that you are going to struggle with. Take note of those things and commit to learn about God's perspective and how God is calling you to defeat those things. Eat, pray, love, and remember that the one you are pursuing, your husband, the one that you are chasing after, Jesus, he was perfect, he was sinless, he bought your redemption, but he also was single. So he can understand you in your time of weakness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we we would see you as this awesome giver. I pray, Father God, that we would see the state that we are in, whether we are married or whether we are single as a gift and not as a gruesome curse. I pray, Father God, that you allow us all to see that no matter how bad our earthly relationships are, that we can have a great relationship with you. And when our relationship with you is good, all else can be good. I pray for that person who is entangled in a relationship that they ought not to be entangled for, I pray that you would help them to see that this ditch that they keep falling into is a ditch that you will not remove because you want to get something out of them that they need. 
during this time. Give us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.